My brethren and sisters, near and far, I extend to each of you my love and gratitude. I am deeply grateful for your sustaining faith and prayers. We need your prayers. We desire always to be worthy of them. Many of you write letters of encouragement and confidence. These are deeply appreciated. We likewise pray for you. A few days ago, there came to my office a man from Las Vegas, Nevada. His wife and married daughter were with him. When he had accomplished the purpose of his visit, the younger woman asked if I would accept something from her 13-year-old daughter. She unwrapped a painting of two butterflies around a flowering shrub. The mother explained that her daughter had been struck by a car in a terrible accident when she was four years of age. Her body was badly broken. She was left paralyzed from the shoulders down, a quadriplegic without the use of arms or legs. She had painted this picture holding a brush between her teeth and moving her head. As I listened to that story, the painting grew in beauty and value before my eyes. It became more than a portrayal of butterflies. It represented remarkable courage in the face of blinding adversity, of tenacious practice in holding and moving the brush, of pleading prayers for help of faith, the faith of a child nurtured by loving parents that she could create beauty notwithstanding her handicap. Some might say that this is not a masterpiece. Without knowledge of its origin, that could be the judgment. But what is the test of art? Is it not the inspiration which comes from looking at it? I will hang this small painting in my study so that during occasional hours of struggle there will come into my mind the picture of a beautiful little girl robbed of the use of her feet and hands, gripping the handle of a paintbrush in her teeth to create a thing of beauty. Thank you, Crystal, for what you've done for me. I hope the telling of your story will bring a new measure of strength to others who, facing discouragement, have felt they could not go on. I hope that your example will be as a polar star to lead them in the darkness through which they stumble. When I think of those who carry heavy burdens, my mind goes to our beloved prophet. President Benson is now in his 95th year. He still wears the mantle of his sacred office, but his activities are seriously limited. He's unable to be with us this morning or to speak to us. We love him. We honor him. We pray for him. We sustain him. And we go forward. This Church is established on principles that are divine. From the day of its organization, it has been led by prophets. And I solemnly testify that the Lord Jesus Christ, whose Church it is, and whose name it bears, will never let any man or group of men lead it astray. His is the power to remove them, if they should ever be found taking the wrong turn. We have critics both within and without. Although they are vocal and have access to the media,
They are relatively few in number. If we were entirely without criticism, we would be concerned. Our responsibility is not to please the world, but rather to do the will of the Lord. And from the beginning, the divine will so often has been contrary to the ways of the world. These worldly ways appear to be on a course that should be of concern to every thoughtful man and woman. We in America are saddled with a huge financial deficit in our national budget. This has led to astronomical debt. But there is another deficit which, in its long-term implications, is more serious. It is a moral deficit, a decline in values in the lives of the people, which is sapping the very foundation of our society. It is serious in this land, and it is serious in every other nation of which I know. Some few months ago, there appeared in the Wall Street Journal what was spoken of as an index of what is happening to our culture. I read from this statement. Since 1960, the U.S. population has increased 41 percent. The gross domestic product has nearly tripled, and total social spending by all levels of government has experienced more than a five-fold increase. But during the same period, there has been a 560 percent increase in violent crime, a 419 percent increase in illegitimate births, a quadrupling in the divorce rate, a tripling of the percentage of children living in single-parent homes, more than a 200 percent increase in the teenage suicide rate. The article concludes with a statement from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The West has been undergoing an erosion and an obscuring of high moral and ethical ideals. The spiritual access of life has grown dim. One need not, of course, read statistics to recognize a moral decay that seems to be going on all about us. It is evident in the easy breakup of marriages, in widespread infidelity, in the growth of youth gangs, in the increased use of drugs, and the endemic spread of AIDS, and in a growing disregard for the lives and property of others. It is seen in the defacement of private and public property with graffiti, which destroys beauty and is an insult to art. It is expressed in the language of the gutter which is brought into our homes. The endless sex and violence of network TV, the trash of so many motion pictures, the magnified sensuality found in much of modern literature, the emphasis on sex education, a widespread breakdown of law and order, all are manifestations of this decay. What is the answer? Is there any way to change the course of the ethical and moral slide we're experiencing? I believe there is. What is happening is simply an ugly expression of the declining values of our society. Those who are concerned with the problem advocate more legal regulation large appropriations for increased police forces, tax increases to build additional jails and prisons,
These may be needed to deal with the present problems. They may help in the near term, but they will be only as a bandage too small for the sore. They may help in taking care of the fruits, but they will not get at the roots. In searching for remedies, we speak of a greater work that must be done in our schools, but educators have largely abdicated their responsibility for teaching values. The churches look to this and all other churches. I'm grateful for what the Pope recently said in Denver in warning against moral pitfalls. I'm pleased to note that the Baptists have begun a campaign for chastity. We as a Church are doing much, very much, and I think we are accomplishing much. But it is not enough. When all is said and done, the primary place in building a value system is in the homes of the people. I read the other day of a father who pleaded with a judge to lock up his son because he could not control him. I do not doubt that he has tried, but it is now too late. Attitudes have been fixed. Habits have become rigid. If we are to turn this tide, the effort must begin with children when they are young and pliable, when they will listen and learn. Not long after we were married, we built our first home. We had very little money. I did much of the work myself. It would be called sweat equity today. The landscaping was entirely my responsibility. The first of many trees that I planted was a thornless honey locust. Envisioning the day when its filtered shade would assist in cooling the house in the summertime, I put it in a place at the corner where the wind from the canyon to the east blew the hardest. I dug a hole, put in the bare root, put soil around it, poured on water, and largely forgot it. It was only a wisp of a tree, perhaps three-quarters of an inch in diameter. It was so supple that I could bend it with ease in any direction. I paid little attention to it as the years passed. Then one winter day, when the tree was barren of leaves, I chanced to look out the window at it. I noticed that it was leaning to the west, misshapen and out of balance. I could scarcely believe it. I went out and braced myself against it as if to push it upright. But the trunk was now nearly a foot in diameter. My strength was as nothing against it. I took from my tool shed a block and tackle, attaching one end of the tree and another to a well-set post. I pulled the rope. The pulleys moved a little, and the trunk of the tree trembled slightly. But that was all, it seemed to say. You can't straighten me. It's too late. I've grown this way because of your neglect, and I will not bend. Finally, in desperation, I took my saw and cut off the great, heavy branch on the west side. The saw left an ugly scar more than eight inches across. I stepped back and surveyed what I had done. I had cut off the major part of the tree leaving only one branch growing skyward. More than half a century has passed since I planted that tree. My daughter and her family live there now. 
The other day I looked again at the tree. It is large. Its shape is better. It is a great asset to the home. But how serious was the trauma of its youth and how brutal the treatment I used to straighten it. When it was first planted, a piece of string would have held it in place against the forces of the wind. I could have and should have supplied that string with every, ever so little effort, but I did not, and it bent to the forces that came against it. I have seen a similar thing many times in the children whose lives I have observed. The parents who brought them into the world seem almost to have abdicated their responsibility. The results have been tragic. A few simple anchors would have given them the strength to withstand the forces that have shaped their lives. Now it appears it is too late. Every individual in the world is a child of a mother and a father. Neither can ever escape the consequences of parenthood. Inherent in the very act of creation is responsibility for the child who is created. None can with impunity run from that responsibility. It is not enough simply to provide food and shelter for the physical being. There is an equal responsibility to provide nourishment and direction to the spirit and the mind and the heart. Wrote Paul to Timothy, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. I am satisfied that Paul was speaking of more than physical nourishment. Many years ago, President Stephen L. Richards, then a counselor in the First Presidency, speaking from this pulpit, made an eloquent plea to put Father back as the head of the family. I repeat that plea to all fathers. Yours is the basic and inescapable responsibility to stand as head of the family. That does not carry with it any implication of dictatorship or unrighteous dominion. It carries with it a mandate that fathers provide for the needs of their families. Those needs are more than food, clothing, and shelter. Those needs include righteous direction and the teaching by example, as well as precept, of basic principles of honesty, integrity, service, respect for the rights of others, and an understanding that we are accountable for that which we do in this life, not only to one another, but also to the God of heaven who is our eternal Father. Let every mother realize that she has no greater blessing than the children which have come to her as a gift from the Almighty that she has no greater mission than to rear them in light and truth and understanding and love, that she will have no greater happiness than to see them grow into young men and women who respect principles of virtue, who walk free from the stain of immorality and from the shame of delinquency. Said the writer of Proverbs, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The health of any society 
the happiness of its people, their prosperity and their peace, all find their roots in the teaching of children by fathers and mothers. The very structure of our society is now threatened by broken homes and the tragic consequences of those homes. I believe that with effort we can change this course. We must begin with parents. We must provide understanding on the part of every man and woman of the eternal purposes of life, of the obligations of marriage, and of the responsibilities of parenthood. To men who beget children and then abandon them, I say that God will hold you accountable, for these are also His children, whose cries over what you have done reach up to Him. With the obligation to beget goes the responsibility to nurture, to protect, to teach, to guide in righteousness and truth. Yours is the power and the responsibility to preside in a home where there is peace and security, love and harmony. I remind mothers everywhere of the sanctity of your calling. No other can adequately take your place. No responsibility is greater. No obligation more binding than that you rear in love and peace and integrity those whom you have brought into the world, to both of you. Let no bickering cloud the spirit of your home. Set aside your selfishness in the interest of a far greater and eternal cause. Bring up your children in light and truth as the Lord has commanded. Could you wish for anything more than peace for your children? Could you benefit society in any better way? I make you a solemn and sacred promise that if you will do this, the time will come when, looking upon those you have created, nurtured, and loved, you will see the fruits of your nurturing and get on your knees and thank the Lord for His blessing to you. Now, with all of this, I know there are very many of you who are wonderful parents and whose children are growing in righteousness. Happy and productive will be their lives, and the world will be the better for them. I thank you and most warmly congratulate you. Surely you are fortunate. But there are others, too many among our own, whose children, to quote the Revelation, are growing up in wickedness, and who seek not the riches of eternity, but their eyes are full of greediness. To these I make my appeal. It may not be easy. It may be fraught with disappointment and challenge. It will require courage and patience. I remind you of the faith and determination of the 13-year-old girl who, holding a paintbrush in her teeth, created the painting I showed you earlier. Love can make the difference, love generously given in childhood and reaching through the awkward years of youth. It will do what money lavished on children will never do. And patience, with a bridling of the tongue and self-mastery over anger, the writer of Proverbs declared a soft answer turneth away wrath and encouragement that is quick to compliment 
and slow to criticize. These with prayers will accomplish wonders. You cannot expect to do it alone. You need Heaven's help in rearing Heaven's child, your child who is also the child of his or her Heavenly Father. O oh God, our Eternal Father, bless the parents to teach with love and patience and encouragement those who are most precious, the children who have come from Thee, that together they might be safeguarded and directed for good, and in the process of growth bring blessings to the world of which they will be a part. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.